Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to this episode of Be Real. Guys, our subject today is one that I think uh, Noah and I are uniquely qualified to talk about since the rapport between us so resembles that of the characters in the movies we'll be discussing. My name is Chance Solemn Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. How are you, buddy? I'm doing fine. I was thinking that today, too, that like we're basically our own like two-man buddy cop movie. <laughs> right in our wheelhouse we're right Uh, in our wheelhouse and just like what's classic with a series like ours or the lethal weapon i have brought a short character along with me to say things that'll bring an extra level of humor to uh, a franchise that's growing stale my (laughs) buddy uh alex wiederspiel and i were sitting in uh the summersville where are we? This is 3WS, WSWW Radio FM uh, in Summersville, West Virginia. As Noah has alluded to, the, the subject of today's podcast, Shane Black Buddy Banter, and uh, in, uh, because the Nice Guys just came out about 10 days ago, we have watched three of the preeminent Shane Black Buddy Banter movies. Noah, do you want to tell them what they are? Sure. So it's Lethal Weapon. That's what, 1987? Correct. And then we have uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is 2005. And then Nice Guys, which is a a hot 2016. But gang, before we get into our three official selections for this week, it so happens that uh, a bit earlier, I was able to catch someone on the phone who lives at, let's say, the cross-section between Shane Black enthusiast and Shane Black expert. So get ready for a special guest conversation, and we'll uh, review the movies from there. Very pleased to welcome a guest to the show now. He is a a director, an editor, an actor, and a writer, and uh, he's had a busy year as I've looked at his uh, IMDb page. He's been on cruise for the Jack Reacher sequel, uh, Deepwater Horizon, that new uh, Wahlberg, Peterberg movie. Uh, You were on the crew for some episodes of the Roots miniseries, and that uh, LBJ HBO movie that premieres tonight, actually, coincidentally enough. and then this week, you were telling me you've been working on uh, MTV's Scream Season 2, which premieres on Memorial Day. Welcome to the show, Josh Stevenson. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, great. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You made a wonderful uh, supercut of some of Shane Black's uh, favorite tropes, riffs, patterns, um, which is on your Vimeo channel, uh, and your handle is Josh Step. STEP, uh, so people can check uh, check that out along with some of, of your other videos. I would highly encourage watching this one multiple times if you're a Shane Black fan. Um, but Josh, let's start with the supercut. Um, one of my favorite things about it is I just think it strikes a perfect 
Shane Black appreciation tone and that it feels to me like it's made with love but also with like a, a hearty like tip of the cap that he's also ridiculous and that's like part of what makes him great so where where were you coming from when you were making this um well thank you I appreciate it um <laughs> uh, yeah I am a fan of his work and um just movies in general but uh with Shane Black in particular um it sort of came from uh, a few years ago when Iron Man 3 came out, and it was a very big hit. You know, everyone and their brother saw that. Um, and no one seemed to talk about that this was Shane Black. And, uh, right. you know, this is the man who created Lethal Weapon and uh, Last Boy Scout and so much more. Um, and it had been a while. You know, this was only a second directorial effort. But, and beyond just Christmas time, um, this, is a, this is screaming Shane Black. So um, I figured I'd just have to conv- show people how similar... Uh, these things are that this is a a bigger body of work outside of just a Marvel sequel right can you describe the assembly process a little bit because I think you probably hit on man I don't know like maybe because the supercut goes quick but there might be 15 different like patterns you're sort of pointing out and that must have must have been kind of intensive can you describe the assembly process uh, sure. Um, well, I actually didn't uh, number them or think about it that systematically, but obviously as the process grew, I noticed more and more things. Uh, when you're editing, you're very close to all the footage. So just more and more things start cropping up. And honestly, this is probably the final cut is maybe about half of what I wanted to put in there. Um, oh, I just really? couldn't fit everything in. Um, for instance, there's a a scene in Iron Man 3 when Tony Stark looks up at um, the dead body of someone he just fought when this, uh, what, this one of these AIM agents gets blown up into like a telephone wire. And it's actually a very striking graphic image in a PG-13 movie where uh, her corpse is tangled up in like power lines. Um, last Action Hero, Schwarzenegger looks up at a dead cop in a tree, uh, like a burnt corpse in much of the same way. And um, that was one of the genesis moments that never actually made it into the cut because it's so quick. See, I think this, like, a supercut that points out um, writing and directorial patterns is is so interesting. And this one is so charming. And I wonder what you think. Because I can imagine, I can imagine someone making one of these four uh, different directors and the response being more like, oh, well, that person just does the same thing over and over again. But for some reason, when it's Shane Black, it's just like, this guy's playing the same riffs and working with the same stuff, and he's got his little calling cards, and, like, it feels... How does he, in your mind as a fan, like, you know, get away with that or present that in a way that is appealing? That's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, maybe that's one of the things I really responded to in his work, over the years. Um, I'm a child of the 80s, so I watched a lot of action movies and just sort of, I mean, obviously he created the, um, the prototype like Rough Around the Edges Cop with um, Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon. It, it is sort of like they become stereotypes, but I mean, I don't know. Um, he never seemed to repeat anything. It's, it felt more genuine and genre appropriate. Because obviously, I mean, you could trace back influence to, like, film noir. I've heard people call his work Mm -hmm. neo-noir. The sort of the hard-boiled detective, which itself is already sort of a cliche. So, um, yeah, I suppose it just must be uh, 
his affection for the medium and genre. And as a fan myself, I feel the same way that it's like his stuff's just as good. <laughs> so I wonder, this is maybe this is sort of like an odd side question, but it strikes me, uh, Josh, you're a, you're a visual guy, you're a director and editor, and uh, you think about that side of things visually. I think most of these movies, uh, as you alluded to earlier, um, he did not direct. Uh, and I mean, obviously Richard Donner did a great job of translating him for those, uh, for the first two lethal weapon movies. But when you think about just, uh, maybe kiss kiss and Iron Man three, when he actually did get behind the camera for these full length films, um, does that, what did you make of his like visual eye from a guy who had mostly been a writer for the prior 15, 20 years? Um, well, it might just be uh, Robert Downey Jr., but with Kiss Kiss and Iron Man, um, there seems to, not improv per se, but there seems to be a lot of freedom for the actors. Okay. Um, and once again, it's kind of hard to tell in, the, in a franchise with Iron Man, but obviously John Favreau started it, and he's an actor, so I kind of felt he got the ball rolling with these actors to sort of improv as it goes along. Um, and now it's kind of formulaic with the Avenger movies that there's always like, you know, a one-liner here and there and, you know, com um, comedy slipped in every now and then. But, um, but judging off of Kiss Kiss and Iron Man, it just felt like, and even with like Val Kilmer and, uh, he, he just hires a lot of, um, well, actors I enjoy watching, like Corbin Burnson is like a villain in Kiss Kiss. Um, oh, and speaking of, let me just nerd out, in Iron Man 3, the president was William Sadler, which is one of my favorite actors. Um, he was a bad guy in Die Hard 2, which has nothing to do with Shane Black, but it is Christmas time. <laughs> oh, that's how I, you know, because I just watched Iron Man 3 yesterday, and I was like, what do I know that guy from? And now you're telling me it's the scene where he's doing the naked yoga at the beginning yes, of Yes, naked yoga Die guy. That, he okay. is the president of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> um, well, that's it. And I like to think that's just Shane Black. The thing about these Marvel movies, like whether you uh, like them or not, the thing that they often lack is like a director's personality coming through and like who has a bigger personality than than Shane Black. So where do you see that shining through in Iron Man 3 the brightest? I mean, it almost sounds like a, a prank that we're going to get like an 80s action guru to direct. Yeah a Marvel franchise movie. Like, I can't believe this really happened. And he pulled it off. I mean, it wasn't, you know, something outrageous and it didn't fit. Like, it worked within the mold. Totally. Um, I, I, I was thinking it was funny when I was watching it. Like, he really did manage to, at least in the first 40 minutes, it's like, how did you turn Iron Man into, like, an L.A. movie? But he'd managed <laughs> to do it for, like, a third of the movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess that's true. I didn't really think about it that way. And then... He kind of, you know, he has this like moment of that like Miami compound with like the the girls and the coke, and it's just like, yeah, there's definitely some Shane Black <laughs> in here that I don't it's think an anyone 80s else. Movie. Would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I wonder how much they had to tone it down. Like, um, if there were scenes of yeah, like giant piles of cocaine on a table in Miami. Right. So let's duck back quickly to the supercut. One, well, the one that I have to ask you about that I probably did not notice until maybe the eighth or tenth time I watched it <laughs> is the hats. Like the yeah. where you spend like five seconds, and I think it's you know Schwarzenegger and Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. and they're all wearing like the same navy blue baseball cap. How on earth did you notice that? 
once again, Iron Man 3, when he like goes to the hardware store to buy equipment for what, to make yeah. weapons, he puts on a hat, and I'm like, no one's going to recognize Tony Stark with a hat <laughs> In on. In a hat. <laughs> um, and actually, around the same time, before I started the Supercut, I was revisiting um, Last Action Hero, and when uh-huh. Schwarzenegger's in the real world, they just put a hat on him to have him walk around New York City, and no one recognizes him as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and I thought that was ridiculous, too. That's <laughs> so funny. So give me your best reading of the Christmas obs- obsession, Josh. Like, obviously, I mean, at this point, and there is, like, a thing at the end of Nice Guys. I don't, have you seen Nice Guys yet? Probably not. You've been uh, no, I have not. Week. Yeah, I, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I mean, no spoilers, but there is like a christmas part um at this (laughs) point he's got to be very aware of him doing this but what is your best guess for why do you have one um well i've i've come across like only maybe two interviews where he said something more recently um but as a fan like a 20-year fan of his work um it almost felt like you know he might have started it for all i know but um there were other movies in the '80s, like uh, Die Hard, which was Christmas. Sure. And um, and Gremlins was a big one as a kid. That there almost um, becomes this juxtaposition that it's like a holiday movie, but it's also um, a hard R <laughs> movie. Right. Um, what was another one? Uh, I Come in Peace with Dolph Lundgren, a film I absolutely love. For no reason, takes it. place during Christmas. So I highly recommend it. Um, so when you. I mean, obviously, Shane Black is is a very specific thing. These movies are like a quite specific genre of movie. But is there anything, Josh, that like in your own work as a editor, uh, director, uh, writer that you sort of that you take away from him artistically? It's probably just, and I hate to use the word trope again, but um, these sort of stock characters in a genre piece. Like I'm a I'm a big genre fan, so when it comes mm-hmm. to like an action movie, I want X, Y, and Z. And when it comes to a horror film, I want X, Y, and Z. So just to sort of, I think all of his work really plays well within said genre. Yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't leave it very much. It's kind of like film noir. There's always a mystery to unravel, um, whether it be Lethal Weapon or uh, Last Boy Scout or the twist in Iron Man 3 at the end. It's always like a mystery novel. Mm-hmm. Um so I think the sort of respect for the confines of said genre I find really entertaining. Uh, well, Josh, I can't thank you enough for doing this and for uh, giving the internet this uh, this super <laughs> cut. And I'm excited for you to see The Nice Guys, too. Uh, no spoilers, but, I mean, there's definitely a house on a hillside, a car crash, oh. some undue focus on an old television, a precocious kid. I think you'll find some things to like in it. Uh, house on a hillside sounds. I didn't know they had that. I'm very excited now. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, I. I won't say whether it goes crashing into oblivion or not, but <laughs> it has a Shane Black house on a hillside. Um, very nice. <laughs> wonderful. Well, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. There you go. We are gonna we're gonna go chronologically. Yes. I think that makes sense. Okay, so then we're starting with 1987's Lethal Weapon, the first movie that Shane Black ever wrote, directed by uh, Richard Donner. So Lethal Weapon opens with uh, 
I literally just watched this movie. Why can't I remember the opening? Uh, it opens in a very similar way to most Shane Black movies with a naked woman finding her death. Yep. And uh, in this one, she falls out of what looks like the Capitol Records building in Los Angeles and crashes into this car. And that sets off this mystery that then Danny Glover and Mel Gibson have to solve as the two cops, one of them a, you know, a, a loyal family man, the other a loose cannon who's just lost his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then they just let the chemistry do the work and uh, proceed to uh, solve the mystery of what happened to this woman. Hold on one second. (laughs) We have a caller. Noah and Spiel, how much of Mel Gibson's loose canonness comes from the identity crisis he's having between his two nations of origin, the United States and Australia? Um, it's tough to say. He's, he does pretty well with the accent, I would say. Um, I thought his biggest, his biggest acting challenge was just acting under that just carpet of hair he has, like just flowing from his head. I like to think of it as a lion's mane, really. Yeah, it really was. And if we want to get into it in a very traditional, uh, Shane Black way, the, a conspiracy unfolds because the, the death of the woman who, who jumps from the tower is not, uh, is not the mystery in and of itself, but rather it leads to an advanced and serious drug ring run by uh, former Vietnam special ops guys. And there's a connection there because Gibson was a Vietnam sniper as well. Yeah. And shout out to um, Gary Busey, who plays uh, the Mr. Stamper uh, of this movie. Mm-hmm. The uh, the blonde... Mr. Joshua. Yeah, Mr. Joshua. What a, yep. uh, what a, a sidekick... Uh, villain bad guy because he, he's not quite the villain he's the like the the head, lead henchman yeah the lead henchman yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna toss something out about the two main characters because I think we're gonna be talking about the dual protagonists a lot in these movies sure I think that this movie in particular is not great because the characters are the two Merton rigs are very well drawn but that Shane Black has just given them enough to do that they can kind of do whatever they want. And I think that's half the pleasure of watching. What well, do you I think, think that's like the, the Shane Black formula. And we'll talk about this as we go along in his movies. But I feel like he's just very, he's a better screenwriter than he is director. Because he just presents like interesting situations for characters to be in. And then if there is chemistry between the two leading actors, then it's like basically a good movie. But these are not like revolutionary like plays on the genre or anything. No. Like it's Even a pretty though, typical like buddy cop movie. Yeah. And you could argue though that in doing this though, he is inventing what will ultimately be, you know, ripped off for the next like 15 years and then satirized in a movie like The Other Guys, right? Right. Hey, oh, okay, no bullshit. You want to kill yourself? Oh, for Christ. Shut up! Yes or no? You want to die? Yes or no? I got the job done. What the hell do you want? You didn't answer the question. Oh, what do you want to hear, man? Do you want to hear that sometimes I think about eating a bullet? Huh? Well, I do. I do. I even got a special one for the occasion with a hollow point. Look, make sure it blows the back of my goddamn head out. Do the job right. Every single day I wake up and I think of a reason not to do it every single day. I mean, I think it's so interesting, too. I mean, I think that, I mean, Richard Donner is, like, a pretty famous action movie director, and he's at the helm in this one. And so I think, like, he's very good at getting, like, action movie performances out of people. Yeah. 
And I also think it's funny, too, that the way these characters are drawn, not necessarily on the page, but maybe just in the, how the movie was constructed as they shot it. But, like, the choices they make are so... Like, the, the visual choices that are made are so interesting. Like, starting out with Danny Glover in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. Like, it shows that... I mean, they give, they give him a moment where it shows that he's still, like, a sexual being. And, like, sort of <laughs> good-looking. And, like, his family's there. And it gets to establish the family. But there's just something about showing him without a shirt in the first shot that's like, this guy might be old, but, like, he's still got it. Well, and... M- Conversely, Mel Gibson with no pants and waking up with a lit cigarette in his mouth and then wandering around naked. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting... I don't know. And there's so much nudity at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> yeah, everyone like, is naked. Everyone is naked for most of the beginning of this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the soundtrack... That oh my god! Thing. Spiel and I kept like looking over at each other and just being like that wailing sax. Also, wouldn't I would say Beverly Hills Cop? You, you joked that it would be a, you know satirizing this, but didn't Beverly Hills Cop come before Lethal Weapon? Is that true, Chance? I, I believe it did. I think you're right. I mean, it's definitely like the wailing sax from like. A, you know what has a terrible soundtrack too? Is you ever seen Forty Eight Hours? Uh, yeah. It's kind of like that too. Okay. Well, then it's just the mid-80s for you, I guess. I guess it's mid-80s cop buddy movies that just, like, you know what propels us through the the plot? I'm going to have to go with that wailing sax. (laughs) My idea of urban ambiance is a man (laughs) playing a screaming woodwind up to the top of skyscrapers. (laughs) Okay, how about this, though? If, If I can get into a criticism, is it fair to say that this the plot of this movie the portrayal of villainy the conspiracy is not that interesting well ultimately i think that's like what the problem is with most shane black movies is that it turns out that like the mystery of them is like not terribly interesting this one's kind of conventional in that way like sometimes i'll argue in some of the other ones that like when he jumps away from the the inciting incident of the mystery like he picks weird side roads this one's just kind of boring mostly right. because mitchell ryan the general not an interesting character no. and gary Busey's kind of contained a little bit right oh it was before he like really lost it yeah 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 i would describe the conspiracy as a mile wide but just about an only an inch deep really is the way i would look at it that's a nice totally. that's a nice idiom there spiel yeah but i think like what becomes entertaining about this movie ultimately is watching the chemistry between these two like both like pretty good, but like very contrasting actors, like in yes. their approach to like what this movie should be. There's something very earnest about this partnership, something mm-hmm. that's like almost sweet. You know, it does, it's not that bullshit where like two unlike people in an action movie uh, kind of get along because of proximity or because one saves the other. As the film progresses, they sort of legitimately bond over the fact that like neither one of them will succeed personally or professionally without what the other brings to the table and that partnership feels weirdly true because i mean we keep people in our lives because sometimes you know they bring us things that we simply don't have and that's kind of what happens with Riggs and murtaugh well it's like sort of like you and me like i don't have the technological (laughs) capacity to produce a podcast but you do yes um I'm, so like you I, can I don't shoot want to talk uh, about my deficiency. I'm not my opinions are not uh, as good as mine. Deep seated <laughs> enough. 
Right. Um, you're, okay. not, you're not taking the, So which one are you? You're definitely the, the Murtaugh. I'm Murtaugh. You're Riggs. <laughs> and Spiel's Joe Pesci. There's never a doubt <laughs> in my mind. Who's not in this movie. Who's not in this movie. You know, I, when I like remembered this movie, when, when was the last time you'd seen this movie, Chance? Long time ago. Decade? Didn't you remember like a lot of details from other Lethal Weapon movies being in this movie? Yes. In fact, I remember the fun of the second one uh, in this one, and it's there's it's missing in the first. Is one. the second one the one with the the guy who owns the skate shop in Mighty Ducks playing the South African diplomat? Yes, that's okay. correct. Diplomatic immunity. It's been revoked. <laughs> Um, I would argue that this and the same with nice guys are like, they're kind of missing the Joe Pesci character. They're missing sort of like the wild card who tells these two central figures like what's what and is kind of cheeky or crazy about it or something. I think this is like the first time anyone has been recorded like in favor of the Joe Pesci edition to the Lethal Weapon <laughs> series. <laughs> As a type, I missed him. Um, uh-huh. Gibson... Real quick about Gibson. Something about he's one of the few action stars who I think you could describe as squirrely. Like the way <laughs> I called he... you squirrely earlier today, Spiel. <laughs> the way he moves his body, so, like the lateral movement, the feeling <laughs> that like he's so over caffeinated. If like someone shoots in one direction, he'll three sixty before he turns that way. Right. Is so entertaining as a physical performance i think that was a big takeaway too oh absolutely he really um he puts his back into it oh yeah um but that's like a good mel gibson performance like when he is like a very physical actor right like this brave heart um you don't want him to just stand there well even like the silly dancing sequences he does in like what women want or even like the scene of him putting on all the like the ladies stuff like, right. it's physical comedy, and I think he's very good at, like, physical acting. Yeah. Uh, foreshadowing uh, a little bit of Gosling in The Nice Guys. Um, what? Should we rate this? Yeah, Spiel, what do you think? Do you think it was entertaining? I, I think part of the problem, I mean, it was definitely entertaining. Part of the problem I had is, like you mentioned earlier, I was remembering bits and pieces, having not seen this in a long time, from the earlier Lethal Weapons, and on top of that, the first time I saw that epic torture scene with the uh, the, oh, the electrocution, yeah. that I saw that out of context. And so it was far more menacing when I saw it out of context than seeing it in context again for the first time in years. So sure. I, I kind of felt a little let down. So I'll, I'll go with a B minus. He's going with okay. a B minus. But Spiel, on Be Real Guys, we rate movies on the two grade system of is it a good, do you think it's a good movie? Like well made. Yeah, I do think it was well made. So, and you think it was entertaining, so you would call this a good, good movie? Sure. All right, Spiel's giving it a hot, good, good. Chance? Okay. I'm going to give it a soft, good, good. I mean, there are, there are things that it slows down sometimes. There are missing, there are characters I sort of wish were there. I wish the villain was more entertaining. Um, there's some very, like, <laughs> outdated 80s things. Like, oh, like uh, that phone, that cell phone thing that he has on that bridge? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wasn't. I mean, I wouldn't criticize that. Uh, like '80s values, like when uh, Danny Glover is trying to save Mel Gibson from the explosion, and Mel Gibson asks if uh, 
he's just like, what are you, some kind of homophobic slur? And it's just like, we need to get that out of here. At one point, he says, disgusting at the notion of lesbians. Like, just some, <laughs> like very, some very outmoded values here. Right. And there's even that sort of questionable moment they have at the men's room door. It's like, you can't come in here. You're a woman. And it's not 2016. Yeah. So nice. soft, good, good. Those things haven't aged. The, well. the yeah, okay. So the the yourself, Noah. I'm gonna wise? go. I'm gonna give it a good, good. I okay. thought. I think this is like a pretty great sort of entree into the um, the buddy cop movie. And I think. I mean, okay. I think it's one of the better like cop movies ever made. Yeah, it's definitely an original. That's for sure. Yeah. So from here we go to 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Spiel, have Shane you seen Black. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? No, I actually have not. I'm pretty much useless at this point, much like Joe Pesci in all of the Lethal Weapon films. <laughs> well, that's good that you, at least you know your role. <laughs> Feel free to chime in though, Spiel, if you yeah. want. Yeah, or you can keep uh, quiet for the next 15 minutes. It's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> Considering I haven't seen the nice guys either, I may go upstairs for a little bit. Well, it was, it was certainly a pleasure. And thank I, you for the use of your, your radio equipment. No, not a problem. Nice to hear your voice, Spiel. Good night and good luck. All right. Um, speaking of mid-aughts, Robert Downey Jr. performances. Um, okay. So this was uh, Shane Black's directorial debut. Uh-huh. It comes off a 10-year hiatus where he, I think he sort of flamed out after Long Kiss Goodnight in 96. The industry wasn't super psyched about him. I think he was rehabbing, if I'm not mistaken, from... Uh, some some drug and alcohol issues. Oh, interesting. So this is kind of this is kind of him on the comeback, and I think you instantly sort of feel the energy that he's coming back with. Okay. Um, but also sort of the age. Like Robert Downey Jr. is not that interested in that party. Like someone who's been to the party before, and Shane Black has been to the party before. Well, and also Robert Downey Jr. has been to the party before. Totally. Yeah, it's a fitting proxy in that way. It is. Yeah, yeah. So um, why don't you run us through the plot real quick? Well, it also feels like he's been watching a lot of Tarantino because the thing that, of course, anyone knows about this movie, if they've seen it, is that it's extremely meta in the sense that the narrator, Robert Downey Jr., is um, the artifice is that he's controlling the movie in terms of its script and its like visual representation. Um, right. The plot, and I can't believe you stuck me with this, please help me, uh, is that... Robert Downey Jr. is a small-time thief in New York City, mm-hmm. and he gets cast as... Well, he, gets, the, he accidentally, running away from the police, runs right. into an audition. Yes. And because and he's with, actually running from the police, he like gives it a lot of an energy or whatever, and he gets yeah. accidentally cast in this part that takes him to Los Angeles. Yes. And so the movie opens at this, this L.A. party where you meet uh, Gay Perry, played by Val Kilmer, who is a private investigator who is going to help him get some real-world experience for the role. Um, the person whose party it is, Corbin Burnson, what's his role? He's just a rich Hollywood-type guy. He's just like a rich producer or something? Yeah, I think that's it. Um, and then Michelle Monaghan turns up, and she is a wannabe actress who we know from actually the first scene of the movie, which is a flashback to... Uh, Downey Jr.'s life in the Midwest, they used to do, unbeknownst to them as 30 and 40-somethings, they did a magic show together where Downey was the magician who who cut her in half. Um, and so oh, yeah. they, 
they meet each other, uh, don't remember each other. Later, Downey catches her at a bar, and they sort of they sort of rekindle. Um, at the same time as, of course, in a Shane Black way, a conspiracy unfolds in which uh, Downey, who's a thief pretending to be an actor, and uh, Gay Perry, who is a real private investigator who's sort of pretending to be a Hollywood type, that's not really what he does, um, have, to, have to get together and, and solve this case. Right. Which um, deals with Michelle Monaghan's sister. Correct. Who was abused as a child by their father. It's a very uh, convoluted sort of plot, but it comes at you in right. such a snappy way that you can enjoy it while it happens. If you step back, it's tough to swallow in my opinion right um well that's i mean this movie is like the like i don't know a huge example of like shining a light in the face of the audience and just sort of hoping for the best yes if you have a scene that uh you weren't sure went that well for instance you can have downey jr pop in and sort of snarkily comment on what a cliche scene that was uh and that can be kind of cute that can be kind of annoying you can stop and wonder, like, well, why didn't you just come up with a scene that you liked enough not to make fun of it in a structural way? Um, right. Harry was a small-time crook. Oh, boy. Till he opened the door. Oh, no, no, we're not ready for your audition. Just take him. He's ready. You ready, right? To a really big break. Quit acting like the good guy. You got your partner killed. You killed him. <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. Old-school method. Give me Gabe Perry on the phone. But he'll need a real cop. Detective lessons tomorrow for your acting. This is a favorite of yours, right, Noah? It is a favorite of mine. And I think, again, like with Lethal Weapon, it hangs in the chemistry between Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. And I think, again, the sort of social politics are a little questionable in the way in which Val Kilmer's character is drawn. But I think most of the jokes land pretty well. And some of like the sight gags land pretty well. Agreed. And they're, I mean, the fact that they're both fish out of water, sort of, like, with half of their lot, like, with half of their mission. Totally. Like, they feed off each other well. And I think, like, I mean, Robert Downey Jr., we've seen from Iron Man and all that, that he can carry a movie. Yeah, absolutely. And he's really, I like him here in the sense that, I mean, he's doing the thing that made him re-famous in Sherlock and Iron Man. Um but his character is pathetic, which right. I like. I like it when you feel like his motor mouth is compensating for the fact that he's not a good guy and he's a user and a talker and tries to get his way out of things. And it's right. I like him here the way I like him in Zodiac, where he's the yes. coolest. He's kind of the coolest guy there, but it's because he's headed for something bad or coming from something bad. Right. No, I would agree. I think that's why he's sort of. Ultimately, why the the movie works is because of the characters and not because of the plot, which doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> no, um, and Val Kilmer is terrific. Yeah, I think it's one of his probably like well, maybe it's the first time he's ever really been allowed to do anything. Well, you know, in a mainstream because yeah, like the movies he's known for is like Top Gun, where he just plays like the other dick guy. Yeah, and Batman then Forever, Batman Forever, where he's. Oh, I mean, that I mean, was he's not a weirdo a... in Heat. He's got some good stuff to do. Yeah, but he's still like squarely in supporting actor, like character yeah. work kind of, of course. 
But this, like, he's actually given the chance to be, like, the foil or the ally or something. I really like him as the, uh, to use your word, foil to, to Robert Downey Jr. Because he's not just doing the same thing as RDJ. He probably could not. Um, and he's not quite doing the Russell Crowe thing where he's just reactionary. Like, he delivers, like, the venom of his banter with legitimate acting chops. There's that part um, where... He says, I don't think you'd know how to feed yourself if you didn't flap your mouth so much. <laughs> like, he's biting into these lines in a dramatic way that are written for comedy. Yeah. He's very good at it. Yeah, and I like the, And then he just, like, doubles back or doubles down on these jokes, too, with the, like, uh, like do you have a dictionary? You know, you know what you would find if you looked up the word idiot in the, the dictionary? <laughs> like, a picture of me? Like, no, the definition for the word idiot, which you fucking are. <laughs> It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, I'm not. I'm not gonna like fully indict it for its politics, but I, I think if I can try to explain them, A.O. Scott had a great line about the nice guys, which I think is was perfect. Which was just like, this is a dumb movie that's pretending it's a smart movie, trying to be dumb. And I kind of feel that. I think that's like a great way. Um, yeah. To to kind of sum this up because like. In the sense that, you know, Shane Black is aware of, like, how little women get to do in these movies uh, except be sexual objects. And that's why Michelle Monaghan, like, has a fair amount of dialogue to deliver. I don't think it's great dialogue. The writing for her is the the weakest of the movie. Um, And she also doesn't have a lot of chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. No. Yeah, that's really where the movie breaks down is where that that middle... Because they're supposed to be, like, childhood friends, but, like, they clearly, like, just met each other on this film. Yeah. Yeah. They don't know what to do when it comes to that whole uh, scene of, like, should we or shouldn't we? Like, we were were close friends who might have been something in high school. Like, they they don't know how to get through that dialogue as convincingly, especially as Kilmer and Downey do. Right. Um, but yeah, you know what I mean? Like Shane Black is like, oh, I'm I'm well aware of like what I might try to do with this Michelle Monaghan character, but she's still running around in a skimpy Santa suit with nothing to do. Like it's it's one of my things with Shane Black where like he doesn't fear lack of originality. He just kind of knows his tropes and fears being bored. Like he'll do anything not to be bored. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this movie's never boring. No, not at all. Which is which is good. Um but yeah, ultimately, I think, I mean, if you watch it the first time, it's one of those like almost like Christopher Nolan-y movies where it's like, wow, totally. it, it that talked at me for a really long time. That must have been really good. <laughs> and then I've seen this movie, you know, 10 or 12 times. And like yeah. once you're at that level with it, when your relationship is that deep with like a piece of cinema, it's like, okay, it's... It does one it does one thing very well, and that's be not only a decent uh, satire, but it's also a decent crime movie. Or it's a decent satire of a crime movie while also being a decent crime movie. Because you get the sense that he spent the prior 10 years um, kind of being pissed about Lethal Weapon 2 and how that got taken away from him. And you see that at the end, like the scene where uh, Val Kilmer rolls back in and he's alive. And it's just like, isn't this such a dumb Hollywood thing? Like that's part of what he hated about the experience of working on Lethal Weapon 2. Right. Like he's, he's ingested all these cliches. There's that snap at Hunt for Red October. So he's just kind of coming out and being like, I really know my stuff. And I'm like really excited to 
give it back to you in a meta way. And it's a good entry into the filmography. Oh, yeah. But ultimately, maybe you'll come with me on this branch. I think it's ultimately a bad, good movie. I would almost say it's a soft, good, good. I'm, I might come with you, though, because the end... The was... end with the, where they go back to like tell off the father about his incest is just what kind of move is that for a movie this like light and witty? Well, it was such that... like a character detail that we were willing to accept as like this woman's motivation, yeah. but ultimately not something like we really wanted to resolve. Oh, abs- that's a great. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. But yeah. There are just some weird beats with it that like, I would say it's entertaining and you'll like it. I mean, it's still like one of my favorite movies, but I don't think it's like a good movie. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to go soft. Good, good. Okay. Well, bad, good for me. All right. Shall we get to the, uh, this year's fair? Uh, I would love that. May I synopsize? You may. 2016's The Nice Guys. Have at it. So The Nice Guys uh, similarly opens uh, with a young boy (laughs) fantasizing about a naked woman in a magazine. And then the naked woman from the magazine drives her classic 70s car through this classic 70s kitchen. And then the boy, (laughs) the younger brother from Jurassic World, sees her naked in, in real life. Because, like, for some reason she was driving the car, like, basically naked. Or, like, the crash itself ripped her clothing off. Um, Whatever it happens to be. So then we have this naked woman who's dead. And then cut to the fattest Russell Crowe you've ever seen. (laughs) Just just this this hulking bear of a Russell Crowe. Just, like, pour himself out of another 70s vintage car. And, like, give you a little narration about he's like this tough guy who like lives above this nightclub and he like does stuff for money and like he doesn't feel yeah he's at the comedy store that's right and he doesn't feel great about it would you say he's admirably fat he's just so fat in a way that it's like i can tell that this is just like russell crowe who's fat like i don't think they told him to gain all that weight all right before we venture to rudeness let's continue anyway so then He's this, like, hired goon, and he gets hired to, like, beat up Ryan Gosling because he's a private eye, and he's investigating this girl, and the girl doesn't want him investigating her, so he pays Russell Crowe to beat him up. Yeah. And so we go through all of that, but then nobody can find the girl, and then other people ask her to find the girl, so they decide for some reason to team up, and then they they look for the girl. Yeah. And, and she's a 70s porn actress at the at, during the porn boom. Well, she's like just begun her foray. Into, so the dead oh, yeah, girl yeah. was a porn star. Right. So that's sort of the entry point into So, I mean, uh, Shane Black Bates to like just the porn industry. So over the next like hour 45, Shane Black just like throws everything in like the genre convention at the wall. Yeah. And sort of like, you know, waits to see what sticks. And I'm going to have to argue that like very little sticks. I agree with you. It is MacGuffin after MacGuffin after MacGuffin. And it leads to a bizarrely downbeat movie almost. You're a private investigator. My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That is a lot. That's a lot of blood. 
people up and charge money? Yeah. Sad, isn't it? How much would you charge to beat up my friend Janet? What? How much you got? 30 bucks? That's good. This conversation no is over. Going back to the chemistry thing, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, as predicted in that stupid thing that they did at the Oscars, yeah. have no chemistry together. <laughs> Ryan Gosling is this like excitable, exciting young actor who's just like waiting for a good project. And Russell Crowe is fat and like an, an aging action star who I think we've seen like, you know, he had his sort of beautiful minds moment. But now he's just like cashed in and he, well, he, he's kind of just like watching Ryan Gosling like do his crazy man. He's like, I'm going to be the straight guy. It's true. Didn't you, didn't you guys like Beautiful Minds? If not, what about Gladiator? <laughs> um, so I don't think that Russell Crowe is bad. Here's here's my sort of. Uh... No, no, no I, I don't think he's bad either. I think Ryan Gosling is terrible. Oh, my. Oh, we're going to fight. Um, my problem is if I can comedically diagram this, I think you have two counterpunchers here. Neither one of them wants to lead the dance. Neither one of them could get their own shot to use right. three different metaphors. They both need something to happen so they can react to it. And that contributes to the downbeatness of this. I think Gosling is throwing the 20th century comedic playbook at the audience. Something I had no idea he could do and i think it's pretty amazing at that one oh part where he God. finds where he finds the body that's a lou costello bit where he's huffing and puffing he right. sort of he borrows some of leslie nielsen's like near suaveness and the physicality that you know is going <laughs> to result in something like fucked up the the look that he gives the bar ryan gosling's a huge alcoholic as well which i think is in the movie. Sometimes funny, yes. Sometimes funny, sometimes dark. The look that he turns and gives the bartender at the closing event when the bartender says these drinks are free is an unbelievable comedic moment. I thought it was I thought he was playing like those, but it just didn't work. Oh, like man. even when he throws himself off the balcony, it like doesn't work. Because you're expecting because Ryan Gosling's a serious actor. I think he's doing, I think he was the best part of the movie far and away. I thought it was like, well, because no one else in the movie is behaving in this fashion. <laughs> but that's the movie's problem. I think he's like well, that's the, the that's only a, spark. That's a huge problem of a movie to have that <laughs> one actor believes he's in a slapstick comedy and the other ones believe that they're in like a sequel to L.A. Confidential. <laughs> I can't be wrong with you there. I'm I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I just, I think that Gosling is in the right and the movie, the mess of the movie is in the wrong. Whatever it is, his, some, that, <laughs> that thing with the body was cringeworthy or the, oh, can you drink me another girl pour? Did you see the drink girl? <laughs> It's like that's. I think it's great. It's um, a, Ryan Gosling is. He. This is not one of his. I love him as an actor, but this is not one of his finer performances. What about when uh, the he's looking for the girl at the very beginning and goes to the bar where she's hanging out and he's like, "Do you know what she was drinking?" The bartender's like, "Yeah, she was getting down on some bourbon martinis," and he just goes, "That's disgusting." <laughs> no, he's got some good jokes to tell. He just doesn't know how to tell them. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, okay. So yes, his all over the placeness reflects the all over the placeness of the movie. Because at the one point where he is talking to Kim Basinger, who plays the mom of the missing girl, and he's like taking, pretending to take notes, and he's just like, "Yes, porn bad." That's like <laughs> Will Ferrell. That's like modern day Anchorman improv, like not done right. that well. So yes, everything is all over the place in this movie. But I think it's interesting that he is playing a part that was written like in that Robert Downey Jr. kiss, kiss, bang, bang, like worlds. But he's playing it the way Mel Gibson played in Lethal Weapon. Just like very physical, no real regard for like the words on the page or how they'll like resonate on screen. He's just sort of saying stuff and then like flopping about. Let me ask you this. What the fuck was that bumblebee sequence about? See, like I, that see, was I, on the level of that scene in uh, Super uh, Batman versus Superman, where it's like all a <laughs> the dream. The desert hallucination. The desert hallucination. But like that one sort of amused me, whereas this one just like really pissed me off to have uh, Hannibal Burris doing the voice of a Very bee that they've Hannibal only been Burris. tangentially referencing. <laughs> Well, it's just, I didn't have any specific problem with that moment. It's just indicative of how much the movie is throwing at the wall. Like, it does not earn that level of absurdism as much as it but leads that's the to only a, that's the only moment in which the movie, like, goes for whatever that, like, that surrealism. Like, yeah. literally the only one. Yeah, you're right. And I liked the, but some of them I thought were, like, funny, like, some of the things in the movie were funny they were like not ha ha funny. They were like clever. Yeah. Like the fact that they call Matt Bomer, who has like the mole on his face, they call him John Boy because of what's his name from the Waltons. Mm-hmm. And then they like reference that in the phone call if like he didn't get the joke. Yeah. <sighs> this fucking movie. For a Shane Black movie to work a little bit, you gotta know whether the two people you're watching ought to be rooted for, or empathized with on a human level and i think lethal weapon works because you're like yeah they're good people and i want them to win out and kiss kiss bang bang works in its cynicism because neither of them are good people at all and that works fine this movie is obsessed with the question of whether they're good people and has the insertion of ryan gosling's daughter over and over again to be their moral compass but the ultimate conclusion that it comes to with both of them sort of being drunk and vice fueled and that's like the that's how they're gonna go forward from here makes you wonder why there were kids and questions of whether they were good people at all right it has this sort of like weird existential if i may it felt like shane black trying to do like a paul thomas anderson movie where the question of who these characters are became more important than the mystery behind it, hmm. the movie. And I mean, it well, has yeah. that sort of inherent vice, like craziness to it, but it's not as smart as inherent vice or no. as deep. No, not at all. And I was sort of surprised, like in reading reviews of it, like how many people, I, I will say, I think it is a ton of fun as like, as messy as it is. Um, but I was really surprised how many critics were like, it's a movie with a tangled plot, but the plot doesn't matter at all. And it's like, well, that's a major problem given the amount of time that is spent on a on plot, the plot that ends yeah. up being nothing. 
So I think this one is, you know, it's the plots of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Lethal Weapon, but it's like him attempting to be Shane Black um, more serious, like as an artist or like an auteur, like these long panning shots and sort of these, you know, shots where you would have seen the violence in Lethal Weapon and this time it sort of pans away. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you see the guy fly through the glass, through the elevator, but you don't actually see him get shot kind of thing. Right. Which is just sort of a... But I find that it doesn't really work. It's coy and sort of glib, in my opinion, like his visual choices. And I just don't think, ultimately, he's a very good director. I think he's a decent screenwriter. But I think you need, like, a Richard Donner to to sort of point this in the right direction. I, you know, I don't disagree with you there because you can only do kiss, kiss, bang, bang one time. And after right. that, you're sort of like trying to find your visual style on your yeah. own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are you going to call it bad, bad? I, I just like didn't, I wasn't into this movie. I didn't find it terribly entertaining. I thought it was clever at moments, but ultimately was not a well-constructed movie. I'm going to have to give it a bad, bad. Yeah, it's going to be a bad good from from me. I think I think it suffers from in its casting and in its production value. I think it's asking to be taken more seriously than I think people will take it say 10 years from now. Oh, so of people, course. And so I think that more people, although people seem to like it uh right now and I I don't I don't quite know why. I would, well, give it, I would give it a bad good. I think it's the worst of these three movies, but still fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there is some fun to be had, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, I don't... By our rating system, I think it's a bad, bad. Friendo, this was fun, man. Yeah, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you to Alex Wiederspiel, who let me uh, not only crash in his apartment uh, in here in rural West Virginia... <laughs> But also let me use his soundboard into the, uh, what is it? W-A-J-R? News Network. News Network. Uh, Here we are, here in the studio, or at least I am. uh, Coming to you taped. And thank you to Josh Stevenson for uh, guesting earlier on on the show. Uh, That Supercut is wonderful. And again, everyone should... uh, should check it out if you have any interest in the the riff that Shane Black has continued to play over the course of 25 years. So thanks to Josh. To listen to past episodes of the podcast, which we would love you to do, visit BeRealGuys.com. Check out the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud is where we host the show. If you got ideas or comments uh, for our eyes only, you can email us at BeRealGuys, two E's like a film reel, at gmail.com. And give us a follow on Twitter, uh, at BeRealGuys. Another special thank you to Michael Todd for all the internet assistance. And uh, Chance, did I tell you that Michael Todd put one of my, my lyrics to music? Very excited about that. Maybe we could play it on the podcast one of these days. I'm down to do it, man. Buddy? Pal? Great to talk to you as always. Uh, let us keep in touch. And uh, I look forward to the next time we can sit down, you and I. May you never get too old for this shit, Noah. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.